You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Woman on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. Welcome to Woman on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Ayan Shirwa. On this week's program, we're analysing two stories making national news. Our first story looks at what happens when police view migrant and refugee women as the main aggressors in family violence calls. Helping us with this story is In Touch. Our second story takes place in Australian farms. In a recent Senate hearing into job security, it was revealed that Pacific farm workers were severely underpaid and working in conditions likened to that of indentured labourers. That story is later in the show, but up now is my conversation with In Touch. Before we look at the issue of misidentification and how it impacts migrant and refugee women, Let's learn about InTouch. We open this segment with the CEO of InTouch, Mikhail Morris, explaining what InTouch is and how it distinguishes itself from other family violence services. Yeah, that's a good question. So InTouch is a special family violence service that works exclusively with refugee and migrant women. We've been around for about 37, 38 years ago. And our original story, it's quite interesting because... The family violence services started in the 70s with the establishment of refuges, so providing a safe place for women to go who were fleeing family violence. After about 10 years of this kind of services, they identified that migrant and refugee women weren't using the refuges as to their population. So with advocacy, ethnic community organisations, um, in touch with form. InTouch recently published a paper that tries to understand why migrant and refugee women are labelled the aggressor in family violence calls. Firstly, what do we even mean by misidentification? Can you give us examples of what that looks like? Okay, the easiest example is to try and think about what happens when the police get called into a household. So either one of the members of the household or neighbour will ring and say, there seems to be an altercation, I need help. So the police turn up and they have to make some decisions about who is the victim and who is the primary aggressor. And these decisions are incredibly important because it's really difficult in the way we manage everything here to change your mind. And so... What is a situation that occurs, and for in-touch clients, about 30% of our clients, that we believe the police making the wrong call and so they're identifying that the victim survivor is actually the primary aggressor or the perpetrator of the violence. In-touch also, well, the paper lists several reasons why misidentification occurs. I'd love to focus on two. The first one is what you've called systems abuse. Tell us about this. So family violence is a big general term. 
encompasses a lot. Previously, people used to think that family violence was the broken bones and the bruises. And we're becoming a lot more sophisticated. And we understand that family violence can manifest. It can be financial abuse. It can be emotional. It can be psychological. It can be sexual abuse. One of the areas that is particularly relevant for a lot of the clients that in touch see is systems abuse. And that would go into what happens is a lot is that the woman who comes, and I'll say woman because overwhelmingly for in touch, um, we are we support women or people who identify as women. So um, I just shortchange it for women. Um, that they come to this country or they choose to stay in the country because of the relationship they're in. So they don't understand the systems and the processes in this country because they've come for love or they've stayed, they're an international student and they meet someone and they stay and the other person is generally a permanent resident or a citizen. And so he has a level of knowledge that he can use against her. So what would be common, some of the threats that some of the women we support will hear is, if you don't do what I say, I'll get immigration to send you out of the country. If you don't do what I say, I'll withdraw my support and you'll be forced out of the country and I'll keep the children. So it's about the perpetrator who can actually manipulate the system and their knowledge of the system to put fear into the woman. To, to control her and that's a form of coercive control. Another area is just about relationship with the police. People understand how police work in a society based on their experiences. If you come from a country where the police have been a, a violent institution and enforced violence, that you're going to be quite scared to go to the police. Now, if the perpetrator knows that you're scared of the police or authority, they will use that and the systems and police to abuse it. Mm-hmm. When it comes into the misidentification, a lot of these perpetrators understand why the police are there and what the story they need to hear. And so they will make sure that they say it before the victim survivor can, so before she can get her story out. Another reason that they're misidentified, and it's also a reason I feel like all women can relate to, the way the paper labels it, it calls it visible emotional distress of the client. As I said, it's something that we could all relate to because we're kind of accustomed because of who we are and the bodies that we exist in of having our emotional responses viewed as negatively. Absolutely. When we've experienced a situation of family violence, when we're in a situation where we have had an altercation with a person, we get emotional. That's humanistic, exactly what you said. And it's really normal and really natural. But what happens in the situations where the police get involved is they'll walk in the middle of a situation or just after that situation and they'll assess it and they'll put their lens on what a distressed person should look like or what a person who's abused should look like or what an upset person should look like. And if the woman doesn't fit their vision of it, they are suspicious and there is more chance that they're going to identify her as the primary aggressor because she's not behaving the way that they want to or they expect. Being misidentified isn't about just getting it wrong. I just want to point that out. We're not talking about calling someone by the wrong name. These have real-world consequences. What happens when women are misidentified? 
Uh, it's hard to generalise because every case is the same, is not the same. But what will happen is, in the first instance, she will she will generally get an IVO app sometimes. So an intervention order that may stop her going from the house. She may have, if she has children, child protection will be involved. She'll be identified as the primary aggressor, as the perpetrator. So she will have a whole lot of judgments made against her. She, and particularly depending on the rights, if the woman is on a temporary visa, if she's got working rights, she may have a whole lot of problems about where she can actually go if she has to leave the house, if it's deemed that she can't stay there. She will be judged across our legal system. That was Mikael Morris, CEO of InTouch. InTouch has also put out a list of recommendations that you can read in their position paper. Visit intouch.org.au to learn more. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Woman on the Line. Up now is my conversation with Dr. Victoria Steed. In this next segment, Dr. Victoria discusses the exploitation of Pacific farm workers. We start our conversation with Victoria, giving us a basic summary of the Seasonal Worker Program. So the Seasonal Worker Program is a a guest worker scheme. So it's a temporary labour migration scheme uh, through which people in nine Pacific Island countries and also Timor-Leste are able to get visas to come to Australia and work for periods usually of up to six months. Um, it's a little longer for some countries and during the pandemic, SWP workers have often been in Australia for, for much longer mm. than six months. Uh, so they come, they have a visa. Their visa generally is tied to an employer. Um, and so they come, they work. And most typically that work has been fruit picking work. So working in the horticultural industry, uh, picking fruit at harvest time, uh, also working in packing sheds and, and packing that produce. And that's work that tends to be done often by migrant workers. Right. So we know what the workers are doing for um, the farms and basically Australian economy, but what do they get in return? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. You know, I guess the dominant narratives around these guest worker schemes, which tend to involve people coming from uh, countries in the global south to work in the global north. So the dominant narrative is, I guess, really one of development and opportunity. The idea there is that people in Pacific countries who come through the scheme have an opportunity to earn an income that is significantly greater often than the income they could earn in their home countries. And what we often hear is this idea of the triple win. So that's the idea that these schemes are a win for workers themselves who earn income and take that money back. Um, So it's also a win for their home countries or home communities who get the benefits of that income when workers send it back or when they take it back at the end of their working period. Mm. Um, And then it's also a benefit for the host countries, so in this case, Australia and the Australian horticultural industry. Mm. So that's the narrative at any rate. Right. 
Earlier in the month during a job security inquiry into the seasonal worker program, it was revealed that workers were not really allowed to change employers, which, as you know, is contrary to their visa conditions because they are allowed to um, change employers for a number of reasons. What problems do you see, Victoria, with workers being forced to stay on? Yeah, so look, this is interesting. So the visa scheme really effectively does tie Pacific workers to uh, the employers who are named on their visas. And often they are, they're not necessarily growers themselves. They're labour hire companies. So these kind of middleman agencies or organisations who facilitate people's work. And so there are some conditions under which a labour hire company, for example, might reallocate workers from one farm or um, one grower or one pack house to another. But Pacific workers have very little capacity themselves to initiate that movement, that change of employer. And what that means in practice for them is that they have very few options up their sleeve if they find themselves in an employment situation that is um, either outright exploitative or simply not paying very well. And so one of the thing, important things to understand about horticultural labour and fruit picking work uh, is that it's very often paid by piece rates. So that means that instead of getting an hourly rate, you know, $25, $30, $40 an hour for your work, uh, workers are paid per um, per unit of fruit that they pick. So maybe they would receive mm. a particular rate per um, per crate of apples or per unit of, um, of tomatoes, for example. And so that can be, um, can be lucrative. But it often requires workers to work at a really intense, really hard rate in order to pick enough fruit to make a decent amount of money. And if they find themselves on a farm where there simply isn't that much work or maybe uh, the crop has not been very good and so the picking is not so good, workers can find themselves in a situation where actually they're not earning very much money at all, they don't have a guaranteed base mm. um, hourly income, although there has been some recent legislative change that might open up some promise in that area. I'm not sure if we discussed this, but what is their living condition and who pays for those kind of things? So it, look, it's really variable. So I've worked with a lot of Pacific Islander workers in the north central region of Victoria in the, the greater Shepparton area. That's where a lot of my work has been. The accommodation and the living conditions are variable and they often depend a lot on um, on the grower and the place um, or the labour hire agency that is managing a worker's day. Um, mm. So sometimes farmers will have houses um, or accommodation on their properties where workers can stay and the quality of that can be really variable. So in some instances it can be quite comfortable uh, in many instances, it can be very run down, often very cold, poor quality. Um, people are often in very cramped conditions, so multiple people uh, sharing a single room, for example. Um, I've worked with groups of workers who have been accommodated at caravan parks, um, which are very crowded, so I think five, six people in, in a caravan, uh, very cold during winter, very hot in summer. And in answer to the question who pays for that, the workers themselves pay for that. 
but again, they uh, are not able to choose their accommodation themselves. So that accommodation will be decided for them by their employer, usually mm. the labour hire company, and then they will have deductions taken from their pay uh, before it gets to their pocket to cover the cost of that accommodation. Mm. And in practice, workers often end up paying more for that accommodation than, say, a local resident would for equivalent accommodation in the local rental market. In your article, you mention someone by the name of Elizabeth. For folks who aren't familiar with this story, can you tell us about Elizabeth and why she's being threatened to be sent back to Vanuatu? Yeah, so Elizabeth was one of the first Pacific workers I met. Um, This was back in 2016 when I started doing work on the seasonal worker program um, and doing work with Pacific Islander workers. So Elizabeth was part of a group of uh, 20 or 21 Ni Vanuatu women who had been brought out to work in a packing shed. And packing shed work is difficult. It's really the lines, the kind of the motorised lines move um, at a really furious pace, bringing fruit um, and produce along the line and workers have to work incredibly quickly to, to sort that, to grade it, so to select fruit that isn't bruised. Uh, to pick out any any bruised or damaged produce, to get producers ready to pack and to pack it into boxes. It's it's really difficult work. And Elizabeth had been uh, deemed to not be productive enough. She wasn't working quick enough. The employers felt that there were too many um, kind of defects or damaged fruit ended up in, um, ending up in her boxes um, that she was packing. And so... The consequence for her was that she was being sent home, sent back to Vanuatu. Mm. And so uh, this woman who had put enormous effort um, into securing a place in the SWP, it often takes a lot of work. It's really competitive for Pacific Islander workers to get a place in the SWP. Um, And really with the promise of, you know, this transformational experience, this transformational income that was going to change her life, her children's life, her family and communities rise. And uh, instead, when I met her, she was uh, standing at the front of the caravan that she was staying in and holding a, a shopping bag full of chocolate Easter eggs that she'd bought that afternoon at the supermarket. And that was the sum total of what she was taking back to to her children and her family. And so while there certainly are people who do have really positive experiences in the scheme, there are also a lot of workers who find uh, their hopes and their dreams dash mm. uh, and, and workers for whom this scheme is not transformational at all in the way it is common. Yeah. And for some of these workers who are on these farms and, and they've had enough and they leave, they've been accused of absconding. And obviously, I want to make it clear, this isn't a word that I've chosen. It's one that I've noticed that media outlets have been using without like really interrogating it. What kind of image does the word absconding paint about workers? And is this description fair or even accurate? Right. So that word absconding, you know, as you're alluding to, it's such a loaded term. You used to think about someone escaping from custody, right? Like escaping from, from prison. It's incredibly loaded. 
that this is the word that is used um, by media, as you say, uh, also by the government, to describe seasonal worker program workers who leave their designated employer. So that means that they leave without, you know, quote unquote permission. And so that is an action that for those workers can result in very serious consequences. So it can involve the cancellation of their visa. It may mean that they lose any opportunity to return under the scheme in future years. But I think it's also really important to, as you say, interrogate that term, but also interrogate the reasons why workers do leave. And it does come back to the really onerous consequences of this experience of being uh, tied to a particular employer, which can leave workers in uh, incredibly disadvantaged, incredibly difficult situations. If you are tied for six months to an employer that either is outright exploitative or simply where you are not um, receiving the income um, because the piece rates are poor, the picking is poor, and then you're having all of these deductions taken from your pay, you know, as we talked about before, people are left in a situation where they have very little choice. Mm. They may indeed have the hopes of their families and their communities riding on their placement and their work. And so what um, often, uh, well, sometimes uh, workers will choose to do is to, to quote unquote, abscond, to leave that employer and to go to another employer in the hope of earning uh, better income. And so that may well involve working uh, informally, um, so in uh, undocumented work, um, and people are punished for that. But I think it's really important to, for us as non-Pacific people, and I'm a non-Pacific person myself, I'm, I'm doing this work as a, a white Australian researcher, you know, I think we also need to stop and reflect on the fact that when Pacific Islander workers make this decision to leave in search of better work and conditions. This choice that is criminalised really through this language and through the consequences um, that they experience, what they are doing is actually something that any of us take for granted as a really basic labour right, Mm. which is to leave an employer, to take your labour power (laughs) and to go somewhere where it will be properly valued. That's actually a really intrinsic part of, of labour rights and it's something in fact that other workers in the horticultural sector, backpacker workers for example um, or Australian resident workers do all the time it's a really basic way in which people try and have their work valued and maximise the income and the return that they get for their labour but for Pacific Islander workers under this scheme it is effectively criminalised and it's also very easy for people who aren't in these circumstances or who aren't even familiar um, with what's going on. It's easy for them to kind of say, oh, you know, why don't they take legal action or why don't they um, fight the employees in court? I'd love to hear your thoughts on why some workers may be reluctant to speak out. What's the cost of speaking out? A couple of things to say around that. One is to, I guess, make the point that many workers are organising and doing really incredible political work. So the the union movement has been doing some really terrific work with farm workers, including Pacific farm workers, and there have been some incredibly courageous political actions that are being taken by and for and with 
farm workers. Um, so there certainly is um, uh, agency there. At the same time, there are these really strong disincentives on people from speaking out and campaigning. And again, that really comes back to the visa conditions that people um, are working under. So these visas are short-term. The, the promise or the, the ideal is that workers will come, they'll work for six months, they'll go back to the Pacific, um, and they will then have an opportunity to come back in future years and, and earn again. So it can really become kind of a cycle um, mm. of work and return. But that possibility for return is very often dependent on the invitation of the employer. Um, the union movement has done some really great work with some larger employers around trying to ensure a right to return for Pacific workers, but many Pacific workers don't have that. And in practice, if mm. they complain, if they speak up, if they speak out, they simply find that there is no future work for them. Yeah. So... In that way, the, the visa system, the way that this BSWP works, both as a labour scheme and as a migration scheme, uh, is really built in a way that very effectively mitigates against Pacific workers being able to, to complain, uh, to assert uh, power and advocate for their own rights, although many do continue to do that with great bravery. So I think there are a few things that, that could be done that could strengthen the scheme. So I think removing the, um, the visa conditions that tie people to particular employers is really important and really fundamental. So um, ensuring that SWP workers have the right and capacity to move between employers uh, would just be a really significant boost to their bargaining power um, as workers into their, their labour rights and their labour experiences. At a broader level, I think we really need to have a critical conversation and interrogate our schemes like this and the underpinnings of them. Uh, the media coverage around these schemes is often really, um, really binary. Either we have narratives of incredibly disempowered duped Pacific Islanders who have no voice, have no agency, are taken advantage of and the kind of the insinuation that they're taken advantage of because they don't really understand what they're getting into, which is just incredibly patronising and actually just really quite racist. Um, or we have these narratives of smiling, happy, um, very grateful, uh, willing Pacific workers who are just so happy to be coming to Australia and doing really hard, difficult manual work that many people in Australia don't want to do themselves. Um, and that's also really reductive and actually quite racist. Um, and so we really need to interrogate what are the narratives and the images that are, are being mobilised here? What kind of relations uh, are we, as by which I mean Australians, Australia as a country, as a nation, uh, producing with the Pacific through schemes like these? And actually, I think we need to have a really serious reckoning about what are um, the costs of, of these schemes. And we need to hear specific voices really front and centre in that conversation. And that was Dr Victoria Steed outlining some of the ways Pacific farmers can be better supported. 
Her article, Australia Needs Better Conditions, Not Shaming for Pacific Farm Workers, is available in the conversation. And that is it from us. Woman on the Line is the Community Radio National Women's Current Affairs Program. It's produced and presented by a range of broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womanontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03-9419-8377. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash Woman on the Line. The theme music for Woman on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. I'm Ian Shirwa and we hope to see you again next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.